You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. A very happy good morning to those who are with us here and uh, also, of course, recognizing that at this time, like in lots of churches, we're, we're down. We have a lot of folks down uh, with a variety of sicknesses, and hopefully they're able to uh, join us by the live stream. And so we welcome them this morning as well, as well as our guests and anyone else who is joining us. As I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our text for this morning, which is Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. As I mentioned earlier, we are returning to what is an extended preaching series through the book of Revelation. For those who are new in our church, we tend to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible with a little break in the summer, a little break in the winter so that we can focus on some, some key topics that are important to our church at those times as the elders are thinking and praying about the health of our church and, and now coming out of the Christmas season when we focused on Jesus as King We are sort of continuing to do that as we come back to Revelation. You may remember as we began Revelation last year, in the very beginning of verse 1, we reminded ourselves, we have a few different times, what our purpose is in studying through the book of Revelation. There are many mysteries, there are many things that are difficult to understand, but our ultimate goal is not to get caught up in those, but instead to exalt Christ as king in the book of Revelation, because we believe that that is what the Bible is about. We believe that's what, that's what God is doing in this book. And so we pray that God would give us grace and then wisdom and help as we continue to do that over these coming weeks and months together. We pray that our time in this book would be, as always, to the glory of our God and to the gladness of our own hearts as we want to serve him and know him and enjoy him forever. Well, as we look at this text this morning, I'm reminded that there are uh, about two big questions that seem to rule the Christian life. They're important questions that every Christian should be asking. The first question is, what does God want for me? But the second question is, what does God want from me? And that first question, what does God want for me, is usually a little bit easier for us to answer. We have so many examples in Scripture of what God wants for us, of the plans that He has for us, plans to prosper us, plans to, to, to grow us and change us, to draw us close to Himself. We, we see so many examples of the way that He ministers to us by His grace. But sometimes when we come to that second question, it's, it's a little more difficult for us to answer. What does God want from me? Our hearts cry out in all of these different ways. I know that my heart will immediately run to the law. My heart will run to a list of commands. God wants me to do this. He wants me to be this. He wants me to say this. But really, we need to answer this important question if we're to understand the Christian life because it is of immense importance. So I hope that this morning we can do that in the brief time that we have as we look at just these seven verses at the beginning of Revelation chapter 2. We want to consider the answer to that question as we see it here. What does God want from me? We're going to do that by looking at three different truths and considering them carefully as we work through the text. The first truth is this, that God recognizes outward obedience. The second truth, if you're keeping notes, you can go ahead and write this down, is that God prefers love from the heart. And then finally, that God alone enables ultimate change. 
going to take that piece by piece this morning. But as we come to a new chapter in Revelation, let's begin with just the first verse. Get a little intro of what's happening at this change in the text and, and what the author of Revelation is working toward. Verse 1 says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his hand, the one who walks among the golden lampstands, says this. It's really striking to me as I read those words to see that that God is, by His Spirit, introducing Himself in an incredibly meaningful way to them. Notice what He says. He refers to Himself as the, the One, the One who holds the seven stars in His right hand. Sometimes this language can be a little confusing, so we want to make sure that we look at what else the Bible says to understand that. And if you were just to back up just a, a verse or two, you would see some of the context and see that it seems most clear that what he's talking about here is that those stars are the angels, to the angel at the church of Ephesus. The word angel simply means messenger. Most likely, I think the clearest way to see it is that it's the, the elder elders of the church of Ephesus. And then he refers to the lampstands. This is the, the light shining in the church of the congregation. So he's, he's addressing these churches, and we see this pattern follow along through the, the coming verses. But notice that he says, he holds the seven stars in his right hand. These are words of incredible comfort. They should be words of, of incredible comfort to every pastor and to every congregation. That the God who is speaking here in the book of Revelation holds them in his right hand. He holds them in his hand of power. All of the burden of, of work and ministry in the church does not fall on them. It does not ultimately fall on the congregation. It ultimately falls on who? It falls on the one who holds them in his right hand. He cares for them. But notice what he says next. He walks among the seven golden lampstands. I can't help but read this as one of your pastors and draw incredible comfort, especially in times like this, that it is not all up to us. This truth ought to be comforting to every pastor. It should be then by proxy comforting to every church member that this one who has ultimate power is not far away. He's actually walking among the golden lampstands. He's walking among the churches. He is here with us, alongside us, uh, 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 caring for us, comforting us, directing us. And that leads us here to verse two, where we find this first incredible truth, an important truth to understand our answer to this question, what does God want from me? And the first truth is that God recognizes outward obedience. Let me read for you verses two and three. He says, I know your deeds and your labor and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil people and that you have put those who call themselves apostles to the test and they are not and you have found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured on account of my name and have not become weary. This is such an interesting a couple of verses to me because it puts on display something that I sometimes overlook in the heart of God. And that is the cheerful way in which he recognizes even our most feeble, even our most imperfect obedience. 
Sometimes because of the law, we, we are turned such, a, such a, a cold eye upon ourselves and one another as we, we look at our lives, we look in the mirror of the law and we see all of these things that are wrong with us and rightly so. There are many, many things wrong with us. But it's an incredible reality to see that even God in these moments, even in these moments, he recognizes outward obedience. He honors it. He sees it. He knows it. Now we know that God sees all, that all of life is lived quorum Deo. That's that Latin term that means before the face of God. That's a very frightening thought, that we are living our lives before the face of God. But it's also a very comforting thought. Think about this. The God before whose face we live, he sees it all. He sees the good. He sees the bad. He sees the ugly. That's why it's frightening. It's frightening because he, he sees our sin right now as he looks at you, as he looks at me. He sees our sin. He knows about it. He recognizes it. But we're all the more grateful for grace because we know this. That having seen our sin and seeing it now, he is continuing to shower us with his grace. I think, oh God, what would I do if my face was the face that everyone else lived before? And I looked and I saw all of our sin. What would I do? Well, I would do probably what I normally do. When other people sin against me and cross me and conflict with me, I tend to go to war, but not God. Because of Christ, he has already gone to war. He's already given Christ for all of the sin that he sees. He's already given us in this incredible gospel, the good news of his grace and his mercy. But it is still frightening to know that God sees us. But here's the comforting reality. He does not only see the bad and the ugly, he also does see the good, the good that he's been working on, the good that he's been bringing into our lives and, and, and shepherding us and changing us and pruning us and molding us, all of the ways that we're changing when no one else can see it. God can see it. And that's a comforting thought. Among this church, the church at Ephesus, as he sees them, notice what he says. It's such an encouraging word for them to hear as his eye is on them. Notice the different things that he sees. It's, it's like this ongoing list. He's, he's sort of showering them with this, this kind of affirmation of the good that he's been working in them. He notices their good deeds, their labor, their perseverance in good work, their intolerance for what he calls evil people. This is the false prophets of the day. Those who were infiltrating the church with untruth, they're pushing against this good news of the gospel. Others who are legalists are coming in and they're, they're trying to hold everyone to these laws as though we could earn our salvation. Others who live by license are coming in and, and trying to, to take it too much advantage of the grace of God and not taking obedience seriously enough. And so he says that you don't tolerate them. In fact, you put them to the test and you find that they are really not apostles. And that's a good thing. He honors their perseverance in spite of opposition. 
He talks about their endurance for Jesus. They're going through incredible suffering and hardship and persecution and all kinds of trials and troubles and losses and crosses and the world and the flesh and the devil, and yet they're enduring by grace. He affirms them because in this, by his grace, they're unwearied. They even have, as he says, this mutual hatred later of this group who were, they hated their doctrine. They hated their deeds because they, they were drawing people away from the truth of God's grace and mercy, living in ways that would, would, never under, would, would never honor the God who saved them. He shows them this. This is something that is so hard for me for some reason to get my mind around. It's something about me. I know it's sin at work in me. Some of it is, is, is my personality. It's ways that I need to grow. I have never, I have never been good at this. I've never been good at affirmation. I've never been good at seeing the good in people. I've never been good at, at affirming them. I've never been good at pointing it out. But something I can't escape is the way that the, the joy of that is somehow hardwired into us. You know this, just like I know this, because you have memories of this happening. Of all the memories you have, sure, you have memories of of lots of hard things, bad things, difficult things, suffering, but you also have memories, fleeting memories, little blips of memories of when someone did what God is doing with them. Someone stopped and said, hey, I want you to know, I see you. I see that. I see God working in you. I see this change. Keep going. Keep walking. That looks good. I'm encouraged. I'm comforted. Will you really help me there? You've been so kind to me. Thank you. You remember those. I remember those. I'll tell you this. It, it, really, it really impresses upon me the, the value of this because of how trivial some of my memories are. I have one in particular from 20 years ago. When we were living in a parsonage at uh, Open Door Baptist Church in North Carolina, the sending church of our church plant, we were living there, I was serving on staff there, and one of our, uh, one of our staff members there at the time, he's still there, uh, was over at our house, his family was there, and we had had dinner, and we were, I was standing at the, at the sink washing the dishes after dinner, and I was washing them, and this Mark is his name, he was standing next to me, we were having a conversation, and he stopped just, I mean, this is so trivial, He stopped just in in mid-sentence. He says, wow, you're really getting those dishes clean. (laughs) Why? Why has that stuck in my mind? Of all the things someone could say to me, it's because this matters. It's because there's something hardwired into us in the image of God that we're made in that this matters. I tried to learn. You, you, could, you could do this with me. There's some books that are available to us. We can read them and, and grow in this. One in particular is a book called Practicing Affirmation by Sam Crabtree. Fantastic book. It's exactly the kind of book that I need because practicing affirmation is something I don't do well. I need to practice it. Listen to this one little line from the book that he says. He says, God is glorified in us when we affirm the work he has done and is doing in others. Do you know what God is doing in these two verses of Revelation chapter 2? He is glorifying himself by pointing out and observing the outward obedience of these people who belong to him 
And he is doing it in wondrous fashion, stacking them one after another after another. You know, this is a truth that lots of people in our world need. It's a truth that I need because I tend to be like many people. And it's almost like my default kind of view of God is that he's, he's this kind of cosmic grouch. He's up there in his trash can and he kind of pops out every now and then just to point out the things that you're really screwing up. He points out all of these things that you're getting wrong and he shakes his finger in your face. But that's not the case, is it? That's not the case here. He's not a cosmic grouch who only pessimistically sees the bad in everyone. Jesus talked about this. We had another glimpse of this in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 7. Listen to this. What person is there among you, he says, who when his son asks for a loaf of bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he not give him a snake? Will he? So if you, despite being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Even here, he sees it again. He points it out and he points it out to his own glory because in pointing it out, he's showing off just how great he is. At the end of these verses, at the end of this point, our first use of this text, we want to put the text into practice in our lives this week. We want to talk about it this week in community group is number one, we want to be like God. And this is one way that we could be like God. This is one way I need to be like God is to practice affirmation where we can. But also, then to glorify God for his charitable vision of you and me. Have you ever thought about that before? Have you ever thought about that in your darkest moments? You think about what does God really think about you? Oh, he must be so upset. He must be so sour toward me. He must just be have had it with me. But that's not the picture we have in the gospel at all, is it? That's not the picture that we have here, is it? Rather, we have a God who in grace, because of his incredible agenda in my life and yours, is looking on us with charity. Nothing has escaped his notice. Even those little good things that he is changing. And because of that, we can rejoice. And yet, there is still something more something more important that exists in the heart of God. And that's what we see next. This is a key truth. It's a key truth that I think the Lord is setting up by, by providing this affirmation of, of the good things in them. And then he tells them something that's lacking. He does it for their good. He's not setting them up so that he can then, then whip them when their guard is down. He's setting them up so that he can work a very particular change in them. And so we get to see what really matters to him. And that is that in the midst of all kinds of outward obedience, what this God really prefers is love from the heart. Listen to what he says in verse four. He says, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. This is another way I think that, that we can see sort of dimly in a mirror in the face of God, a way that we have been made like him. Because this truth right here is something that you and I already know. 
we already know naturally that love from the heart is better than just obedience from the body. Everyone around the world knows this. Every uh, married person, every parent, every friend, everyone knows this. Can you imagine a spouse thanking his or her love for some ministry to them, some service to them? Thank you so much for caring for me in this week of sickness. Thank you so much for being patient with me. Thank you so much for this anniversary gift. And yet then to have, have his or her love say, oh, well, no, it's nothing. It's my duty. It's what I'm supposed to do. I'm just, I'm just trying to obey. Of course, there's no love in that. There's no richness in that. Can you imagine a parent telling a child, I will always be here for you, son. Dear, I will always be here for you. It's required of me. It's my legal duty. I'm your legal guardian. No, we know. We know that there is something more than that. And there's love from the heart. Despite the many good deeds and, and qualities that the Ephesian church was displaying, the Lord himself convicted them. Just as he's, as I read the words, convicting me and perhaps convicting you, he's convicting them about their love. Did you notice what he said at the end of verse four? You have left your first love. Just break those words down and it makes perfect sense to us. Left. They had left a place that they were. They had been in a place of love, but for some reason, in the midst of all of their outward obedience, which is beautiful and good and, and driven by God's grace, yet they had left. They left the place of love. And this love was a priority kind of love. That's why he says, you haven't just left your love. He says, you've left your first love. And he's not talking chronologically. He's not talking timeline. He's talking priority. He's talking ultimate commitment love. He says, you have left your most important love, your priority love you have left behind. So in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of suffering and hardship, in the midst even of some good deeds, they had left behind love for their leader. Has it ever happened to you? Has it ever happened to you in the ordinary kind of uh, uh, things of life? Uh, even happens in a hobby, happens in a sport. You hear, we hear athletes talk about this all the time in the midst of, of intense competition and, and suddenly they're interviewed and they, they say, you know, I'm really looking back at the season and I'm realizing what went wrong. I lost the love. I lost the love for what we've been doing. It's become all business. It's become all performance. I've really lost the love. Love is lost in all kinds of areas of life. But there is none more important than when love is lost in the spiritual life with God. Just as we see it here, we find something, though, important about the heart of God. You see, this is what's beautiful about this text is this is not a crack on the wrists with a ruler. Love me. No. In fact, rather, it is a display of something about the heart of God that is intended to awaken them 
to their love for God. And it's this. It's that he prefers delight over duty. Why is that so hard for me to get? Why am I so slow to understand this? But it's true. What's amazing to me is that I'm slow to understand this because I have a Bible. How have I not seen this more clearly? How does it not stay with me longer that, that he sets the light over and above duty at every turn? Let me give you a few examples. King David in the Old Testament knows this. In Psalm 40, he says, you have not desired sacrifice and meal offering. You've opened my ears You have not required burnt offering and sin offering. Then I said, behold, I have come. It is written of me in the scroll of the book. I delight to do your will, my God. Your law is in my heart. I delight to do your will. It's not sacrifice. It's not what you're after. David, after he was convicted of that that scene with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, he says, for you do not delight in sacrifice, Otherwise, I would give it. You do not take pleasure in merely burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are spiritual. They're a broken spirit, he says. A broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. This is an incredible principle. It's an incredible truth. Listen to it here again. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You're getting ready to hear a worst case scenario of first love lost, of duty over delight. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, cast out demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. Listen to this. There is a striking emphasis uh, in Psalms and in particular in Romans. Just a few more. They come quickly. Rejoice in the Lord always, Philippians 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, Psalm 37. Be glad in the Lord, Psalm 32. In your presence there is fullness of joy, Psalm 16. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God For the living God, Psalm 42. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land, Psalm 143, Romans 5. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Do you hear it over and over and over again? It is a call to enjoyment. God is not calling us to coldly obey him. He's not calling us to get with the program. That's what I need to hear. He's not calling us just to keep up with the commands. He's calling us to something far more beautiful, far more God-glorifying. He's calling us to delight. That's an amazing truth. 
You heard it earlier in that responsive reading or the corporate prayer from the Valley of Vision. That's a collection of Puritan prayers. You know, a lot of people look back at the Puritans and say, wow, these guys are really cold. These guys are really rigid. But if you could talk to them, and we can through the collection of prayers, you find out that's not the case. They're overcome with love for God. Their gladness in God is their ultimate pursuit. Even the last line of what we heard this morning, your infinite love is a mystery of mysteries and my eternal rest lies in the eternal enjoyment of it. Over and over again, we are reminded, delight over duty. What's the big point? The big point is that God loves And strangely, in a mystery, he commands delight. Now, that lands in real life for me in some strange places because I understand that sometimes in this hard life, I feel nothing but duty. I can't find delight in some moments. The, some, some cloud of a, of, a, of a sad or dark providence kind of floats over my head and, and, and darkens my countenance and... And I just can't seem to find the delight. Now, there are times like that, aren't there? But what we have to do in those moments is pursue, to keep pursuing, even in duty, making our goal delight. I want to delight in you. I want to, as he said here, return to my first love. If we want to do that, we're going to have to keep considering, as we said a moment ago, and we should consider this next. I want to encourage you to consider the role of love in your Christian life. Where is love in your life? If you think about your Christian life, do you sometimes find that it's a bit like mine? Sometimes it is about duty. Sometimes it's about that obedience. Sometimes it's about white knuckle, grinded out Christian living. Where is the love? We all have many wonderful things to do for God. But we must pursue the delight of him in the midst of these deeds. That's what he's telling this church. That's what he's convicting them about. And that's what he's calling us to. But even in the midst of this, it stings. It doesn't, it stings a little. Uh, There's good news. And the good news is that not only does God love and command delight, but last... God alone enables this ultimate change. He doesn't give us the command to delight and send us away to go figure it out, make a plan, fix a scheme, get a strategy, work real hard, be real happy. But rather, he calls us to himself as the one who enables the ultimate change. The good news of grace in this life is that God is out to change you. He's not only out to save you. Listen to what we read in Hebrews chapter four about Jesus, this one who not only saves, but changes. The author of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help at our time of need. 
This means that this, this Jesus, this king of ours, that we're exalting, that we're, we are finding our life in, is not only a suitable savior, he is a suitable sanctifier. And he is the one who enables these important changes in us. And he does it by grace. This is the good news. Now, these last few verses present a very serious situation. Because he points out the seriousness of the situation in that they are on a trajectory of ultimate destruction if this issue of first love and delight does not by grace become corrected. Notice what he says in these last few verses, starting in verse five. He says, therefore, remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else, or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is a serious situation, but yet in the midst of that, there is a promise. And the promise comes a little later because he says to the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If this trajectory is to continue, this trajectory where they have left their first love, and yes, they're continuing to do the outward obedient things, but they're not coming from this love of the heart. They are headed for destruction. That's a scary thing. But here is the beauty of this God that in the midst of this, the God of grace gives clear direction for change. That's what I need. I need real clear direction for change because I don't know how, in fact, I cannot solve this problem. And that's what he does here. It's beautiful. It's a great opportunity for us to put into practice what the word of God says in clear and practical ways. Look at verse five. He begins giving this plan. He says, therefore, three parts Remember from where you have fallen, repent, and do the deeds you did at first. It's like he's given us a a down-to-earth three-part plan to regain what is our first love in Christ. How good is God to us? How gracious is this? Is this what you do to people who fail to love you? Is this what I do to people who fail to love me? Give them direction. Come beside them and say, let me help you with this. That's what God does. He says first, remember. Remember from where you have fallen. That word remember simply means to hold in your memory. And here, what is he calling them to remember? Where is the place from which they had fallen, this place of first love, this place of delight. What is that place? That place is the place of the gospel. That place is the place in which they stood underneath this incredible announcement of good news with no mixture of bad news whatsoever that Jesus Christ had come into the world to live a perfect life on behalf of sinners like us, to die on the cross in place of sinners like us and to rise from the dead to call us to himself by grace and to bring us into a covenant love and never let us go. That's why he says, remember. Remember from where you have fallen. It is to remember the gospel. 
It is to get back to the basics of what it means to love Christ and to be loved by him. To get back to what it means to walk with him in the freshness and the sweetness of faith. He's calling them back to that again. He's calling them to remember. Dave Hall and I had an opportunity to go on a road trip. Yesterday, we attended a funeral for an incredible uh, disciple-making pastor who died at the age of 58, very young. And it was an incredible uh, service celebrating his life We heard story after story after story after story after story about how he had invested in the lives of generations of others who became Christians, some became pastors, some became missionaries, about nights around campfires and going on road trips and just sitting around the Word of God and and sitting with, with his, his name was Kevin Hall, sitting with him as he played the guitar and they just sang to God and and soaked in the sweetness of God's mercy. Incredible stories. And it just occurred to me again, the value of the practice of remembering. Because as we sat there in tears, looking at pictures of his family and these generations of of spiritual descendants, we weren't just thinking back about the details. We weren't thinking back about the duties. We were thinking back about the gospel. We were thinking back about what it means to sit with Christ together, what it means to know him and love him. That is what our reminiscing was all about. Here we have this incredible promise of of how much better it is to go back there, to be there, to stay there in the place of first love. I'll read you one more quick quote from Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry says this about this. Consider how much better it was with them then than now, the now being having lost their first love. How much peace, strength, purity, and pleasure they have lost by leaving their first love. How much more comfortably they could lie down and sleep at night. How much more cheerfully they could awake in the morning. How much better they could bear afflictions. How much more becomingly they could enjoy the favors of providence how much easier the thoughts of death were to them and how much stronger their desires and hopes of heaven. This is what we're being called to remember. Remember this place from which sometimes we find that we have fallen when we have left our first love behind. But he doesn't just say remember. What does he say next? He says repent. Here's a word that we're familiar with, but we need the reminder of what this means. Because sometimes it can sound like it's just get with the program, repent, do better. That's not what this is. Because the word repent is an internal word. It's not just an external word. It's a word of change of heart. It's a transformation of what's going on inside of us, in our affections, in our attitudes. It is not merely to do better. 
There's a, there's a dad that I sort of loathe on Instagram. Uh, and uh, his shtick, you know, everybody's got a shtick on Instagram. His shtick is that he plays out this really ugly scene that all the, all the dads can identify with and the way that they have, you know, really not spoken to their children very well or they've been impatient or they've been untrusting and all of this. And then after he plays this scene out, he turns to the camera and he says, Dad, he gives the dads this rebuke. And then he says, do better. And every time I see that, I say, I can't. I can't do better. That's the worst advice in the the world. That's the worst news in the world. And I can promise you this. That is not what the God of grace says when he says repent. He does not say, do better. He says, bring your heart to me. Come to me. Come back to me. Throw yourself at my mercy because I'm full of it. Fall into my grace because I'm overflowing with it. Repent in your heart. And then third, he says, and do the deeds you did at first. Again, in the context, there's no way to read this as go back and get to your duty. But rather go back and find renewal in that original place, those original acts of affection toward me, those original uh, 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 acts of finding comfort in me, of reading my word and soaking in my incredible love for you, do the deeds you did at first. And it is essential. It is essential if you're going to continue walking with me, go back to the basics of first love. And he continues with the encouragement even as we come to the end of the text because he points out yet again the good things going on in them. There were these other folks, the Nicolaitans, they had, they had made a mockery of the gospel. And he pointed out, just like me, oh, you can't stand that, can you? That's good. So keep coming to me. I will keep working with you. And I will continue to change you in the most ultimate of ways. Well, again, as we come to the end this morning, there is one final application from this last bit of our text, and that is that all of us need, we need here some time to consider. We need some time to consider our walk, and that's what I want to encourage you and I to do in these coming weeks. Even at the beginning of this year, you've still got some room to push in some resolutions. Here's one. Let's carve out some time to consider. Carve out some time to consider your walk with the Lord, where you're going to sit down by yourself just with the Lord, and in the quietness of the moment, Bible open, prayers ready, consider your walk with Him. Consider where you are. Take time to do what He is calling us to do. Remember, think back about those moments, those days, those deeds the deeds of the affection of the heart that loves God. Just like we heard from Jonathan Edwards uh, last week, he continued to review his resolutions every week. This is the kind of consideration that we need. So let's find some time to do that as we ask God to help us. I want to just bring all of this to a conclusion with this hopeful thought that sticks with me from this text, and that is, 
You know, he is walking among us. That's what he said at the beginning. I'm walking among the seven lampstands. He's walking among us. Right now, he's walking among us. Right in here, just as he did then. And he has spoken to us. He's not spoken to us through my words. He's spoken to us through his words. And therefore, because of that, now we can consider how this renewed love for him may work to his glory and to our gladness. And so we want to take all of this to heart. You know, this begins by faith in Christ. It could be that you're here, you're on a live stream today, you're not a Christian. Today could be the day of your salvation, the day in which you turn by faith and repentance to Christ who is overflowing with grace and mercy for sinners like us. We are praying. We are encouraging. We are hoping that many will come to Christ. Join us so that we can do this walk together and that we can continually return by remembering and repenting to our first love because there is no love like that. Please stand with me as we pray and prepare our hearts yet again to sing to this God of ours. If you want to talk to a pastor, this is a fantastic time. There will be those at the back that will speak with you and talk more about following Jesus or find a time this week. We're always happy to do that as well. As we give thanks to God in this moment, Father, we thank you because you are the God of grace. You are the God of mercy. You are the God who sees all. And, and you acknowledge all of the ways that you are working in us. You acknowledge the spots that we don't see, even in the midst of the sin that we don't see. And you are gracious to us. Oh God, we pray that as we've read these words from your word today, that they would sink into our hearts and that we take them seriously. We want to, in every way that we can, in every way that we need, to return to you, our first love, and that we would regain and gain more the delight of knowing you. We want to be made glad in you. We want to be made cheerful in you. We want to be happy in Christ. And so we pray that by your good news, by these words that we have heard this morning, that you would do that for us, that you would comfort our hearts, that you would change us, you would forgive us, and that you would help us to change and repent so that we can glorify you all the more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.